Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, it's kind of looking like New Hampshire today, looking out the window here, and all the trees and branches and roads are covered in snow here in Washington. Not as cold as New Hampshire. Uh, two to five inches is what uh, the weather geniuses say. And the schools are closed for the third out of fourth days, because we had a snowstorm early in the week. I mean, this is a typical puny winter storm, but the roads are icy, so the kids have been loving this week because they haven't had any school, except for one day. Uh, but speaking of New Hampshire, a lot of that ahead. I got to I got to start with this. Ron DeSantis wishes he could have a do-over with the media. He tells Hugh Hewitt, um... I came in not really doing as much media. I should have just been blanketing. I should have gone on all the corporate shows. I should have gone on everything. I told DeSantis in an interview that he should have, or asked him why he didn't have, instead of just limiting himself uh, to Fox and a few other lower-profile outfits. And, you know, and he deflected it, and he insisted it wasn't true, and of course it was true. The day he got in the race, he should have blanketed everything. And so, look, no presidential campaign is perfect. We'll get to some of the criticisms of the DeSantis campaign. But to me, I keep harping on it because for months, whoever my guests were, they would say, oh, you don't understand, Kurtz. Uh, you know, people aren't paying attention now, and he's got well, to wait till the right time. Well, people are paying attention and what happens is you get an image that's defined. And once your image has been defined by your opponent, you are screwed, to use a technical term. Okay, I want to just touch on the foreign policy before we get into a lot of politics and legal stuff as well on this Friday, which reminds me, we have a weekend coming up. Hope you've got some good plans if you're not snowed in. East Coast has got, you know, kind of in a deep chill. And... I've got to go back today and do more uh, reworking and rewriting for Media Buzz, but we will be on the air Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox. Iranian-backed Houthi militants targeted a tanker in the third such attack on commercial shipping in three days. And President Biden acknowledging that these U.S. airstrikes, which have been somewhat limited in nature, have not deterred this Yemeni terrorist group. I don't know if the, if the Houthis are just taunting America or really want a war, but it's yet complicating the geopolitical picture. Uh, depending on the mic picking up the sounds, you can probably hear a snowplow behind me. I'm telling you, it's, uh, it's very white here. In the meantime, Bibi Netanyahu, has made clear 
defying the Biden administration, defining the U.S., that he has no interest in a two-state solution, an independent territory or state for the Palestinians. In any future agreement, this is at a news conference yesterday, Netanyahu saying Israel must have security control over the entire territory from the sea to the Jordan River. This is a necessary condition and it clashes with the ideas of sovereignty for Palestinians. What can we do? I told our American friends the truth. I will not compromise. Bibi has never, ever, ever wanted a two-state solution, even though that's been the official U.S. policy and it's always just been a mirage. It's further away now than it ever has been. And what hope does that give the Palestinians? Now, I'm not defending Hamas and its brutal tactics and surprise invasion and the way it kidnaps and mutilates everybody from the very young to the very old. But if this is ever going to stop this cycle of vicious war, you've got to work towards some form of self-determination. All right. That will that falls under the category of to be continued. Number one, I had this feeling. I'm watching it. I've covered so many New Hampshire primaries. I know what an exciting New Hampshire primary feels like. There's an electricity in the air. Uh, news is made all day long, and then the next day more news is made. But Politico nails it with this lead. The storied New Hampshire primary is a dud. Debates are off. That's a big deal because usually the one or two debates get a lot of coverage, particularly one held on the local ABC channel in Manchester. The frontrunner, Donald Trump, chose to spend a day in court. Well, more than one day. His main rival, Nikki Haley, is keeping a light, by New Hampshire standards, schedule. And Ron DeSantis, already an afterthought here, is effectively seeding the state and moving on to other contests. What remained was a string of nighttime rallies by the former president and a handful of retail events featuring Haley. No one is barnstorming. Here's Dave Carney, longtime New Hampshire Republican strategist. You don't see the frenzy, the frenetic activity. You don't see the movements that are usually going on where you have folks crisscrossing the state trying to get every last vote. It's mostly a lot of TV ads and a lot of mail. And Haley, after a string of gaffes, has largely, largely traded her staple town hall events for rallies and meet and greets, where she can interact with voters with less chance of being picked up on a hot mic. I'm sorry, that's not New Hampshire. And of course, there's no real Democratic primary on the other side. But if you're the underdog, as Nikki Haley clearly is, you want to be barnstorm. You want to be generating controversy. I just don't get it. And the reporters are ticked off because, A, I don't know, it was like six below there yesterday, so they're trudging around in the snow, and B, there's not much to trudge to. There just aren't many events. I don't, I've never seen a New Hampshire primary like this. I remember being in New Hampshire in 92 when Bill Clinton was running against Paul Songus and some others. And I, had, I was there for like three or four days and then I scheduled a flight to go back home. I got to the airport 
literally was, you know, had my ticket. And suddenly, on the other side of the airport, I see that Clinton is there and he's having some kind of news conference. So I wander over there. And he was talking about it was either why he didn't sign up for the draft, whether he dodged the draft or Jennifer Flowers. I think it was the draft. And I just said to myself, this is wild. I'm not leaving. I canceled my ticket and I stayed a couple more days. I could go on. So here is the New York Times version. Nikki Haley has New Hampshire to herself. She did a CNN town hall. I'll get to that in a moment. She's trying to reframe the race as a two-person contest between her and Trump. It is in New Hampshire. Trump accused her of relying on Democrats and liberals because in New Hampshire, independents can participate in the GOP primary. Now, she was asked in New Hampshire about the E. Jean Carroll trial that Trump spent two days this week attending, got into a huge fight with the judge, which is exactly what the former president wanted. And she said, I haven't followed it. I'm not a lawyer. He's entitled to the presumption of innocence. So you're running against a guy who has already been found liable in the first of the two E. Jean Carroll trials for sexual assault as well as defamation, and you're like, oh, I haven't followed it? It's such a total dodge. This is why people think that Nikki Haley is just way too cautious. Now, on the CNN town hall last night with Jake Tapper, Nikki Haley said, was asked about, uh, would you pardon Trump? And she said, well, first of all, these cases have to play out. I'm sure Trump would want that. Um, and she talked about, you know, people don't necessarily believe everything Donald Trump says, and then Tapper pressed. But would once, if he was convicted, would you pardon Trump? And Nikki Haley said yes. She said, I don't, there's no point. It would just further divide the country to have an 80-year-old foreign president sitting in jail. You could agree with that. You could not agree with that. But the point is, she always manages to dance around these questions. And... Asked about um, Trump using her given Indian name, Nimarata. Nikki, as I mentioned yesterday, is her real middle name. She said, I know President Trump well. That's what he does when he feels threatened. That's what he does when he feels insecure. So that's a bit of a shot. Trump, meanwhile, is apparently... Um, a little stung by Haley lumping him together with Biden and saying, you know, we need to move beyond a couple of 80-year-olds competing for the presidency. So in New Hampshire the other day, Trump said, I feel like I'm about 35 years old. I actually feel better now than I did 30 years ago. Tell me, is that crazy? I feel better now, and I think cognitively I'm better than I was 20 years ago. I don't know why. Trump counterprogrammed once again the CNN interview with Haley by going on Sean Hannity's show last night. And among other things, Hannity asked him about 
you know, it's kind of faded from the news a little bit, except that Trump has just filed, or his lawyers have just filed, a petition with the Supreme Court to overturn the ballot bans enacted by the Colorado Supreme Court and by Maine's Democratic Secretary of State. And what Trump said is, I'm sure the Supreme Court is going to say, we're not going to take the vote away from the people. Now, Biden is a threat to democracy. He's an absolute threat to democracy. He's very dangerous for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's grossly incompetent. Well, that, of course, is a subjective judgment. You don't get to be a danger to democracy just because the other party or the other party's candidate doesn't like what you're doing, which is not to say that, you know, the president has failed to deal with the situation at the border. We'll get back to that. Um, at the same time, so now you have each candidate saying the other's a threat to democracy. And in the filing with SCOTUS, Trump lawyers said that if this were allowed to stand, if the people of Maine and Colorado and maybe a few other states that haven't sort of come to grips with this, make it so that they're citizens cannot vote for Donald Trump, kick him off the ballot, that this would lead to bedlam and chaos. Now, some people take that as a veiled warning, but I think there's also something to it. I mean, the anger would just be unimaginable, but I don't think the Supreme Court is going to do that. Now we get into um, some smart people who are, let's just say, not enamored of either the DeSantis campaign or the Haley campaign. Here's Mike Murphy, who's done a lot of New Hampshire primaries. He's there now. He's a commentator now, but he helped John McCain win the New Hampshire primary in 2000. And I spent a lot of time in that state during the primary. And he has been involved in other presidential campaigns as well. So this is what he said. He said, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, just a few weeks ago, was in a position to win New Hampshire and totally upend the race. And then came slavery, Iowa, and debate ducking. Two of those three devastating punches were thrown by Haley at herself. The slavery mess, you know, not mentioning it when asked about the Civil War, revealed her biggest flaw, her fear of offending any base or MAGA voter. Her on-again, off-again criticism of Trump has been a dizzying Charleston dance of incomprehensible footwork, carefully criticizing him one moment and lavishly praising him another. The deadly punch was Iowa, where she came in third. And where the debate with DeSantis, Murphy says, shook her confidence. And now the great debate error. She's headed straight for the canvas. A knockout. A round two knockout. The Granite State enjoys a little drama in its politics, says Mike. It craves a moment, especially with high stakes. The more that moment is about a little comeuppance, the better. Some, uh, the, the old saw is, the, the campaign slogan in New Hampshire that's best is, screw Iowa. So what does she do? She cancels the debate, not going to show up. 
where she could create a moment, some emotion, say something she hasn't said before. She is a very disciplined candidate in my view, but in some ways too disciplined. One bad freezing night in Iowa and Nikki Haley is now damaged goods. So her only move was to stage a Hollywood comeback in New Hampshire. Hell, demand three debates. Look DeSantis in the eye. Say America shouldn't suffer because you couldn't get a date in high school. Call Trump an old wimp. In other words, do something that's attention-grabbing, out of character. New Hampshire loves a scrappy uh, underdog. But if you undercut the power of the narrative, it will compound against you. It could have worked, says Murphy, and I'm pissed. She was a supremely mediocre champion, but she was all we had. Mike Murphy, not a fan of Donald Trump. National Review. Even if Trump is beatable by a Republican, nobody has yet done it. It's presumptuous for commentators to just throw around alternative strategies as if they were easy and obvious. So, DeSantis. Didn't heed the advice of Scott Walker, the former Wisconsin governor whose campaign flamed out in, I don't know, two weeks, two months, whatever. Talk about what you're going to do, not just what you've done. DeSantis rolled out a lot of policy proposals, but never really captured the public imagination, says National Review, with a signature proposal like Trump's build the wall or Bush's tax cut. His message is still Florida. Uh, DeSantis got burned whenever he tried to find a middle ground, such as on Ukraine. DeSantis should have engaged with the national media from the beginning, as I was saying earlier, as I have been saying on the air, in my column, on the podcast, for a long time. He spent the first critical few months avoiding the press. That strategy worked for him in Florida. He's good at going into the lion's den of hostile press venues. That plays to his strengths. And he didn't take a broad enough view of conservative media, including National Review, with voices who were largely on his side, but occasionally critical. People who are 70 or 80 or 90% friends are not enemies. That's why DeSantis never sat down for an interview with the author or anybody else at National Review. Even Ramaswamy did that. And they are influential. Now, here's a piece in Politico by two veteran Republican operatives, Alex Castellanos, who I know quite well and who uh, worked in four presidential campaigns, and former RNC political director Kurt Anderson. It's in Politico, and the headline is the worst-run campaign in history. Not exactly coming in with the low expectations here. Just read you a little bit of it. The DeSantis campaign should have had a strategy. What passes their strategy was modeled after a weather vane. Whenever a campaign has multiple self-described resets, as the DeSantis campaign did, it means from day one they were strategically nomadic. They kept throwing strategy at the wall, hoping some of it would stick. It didn't. Campaigns should have defined their candidate as Trump plus, something like the former president, but better. Instead of merely trying to imitate Trump, they needed to add something of value. Instead, they offered voters Trump minus. DeSantis pretended to be just like Trump, but in a less bombastic and less entertaining package. The candidate did not match the hype. He was less than advertised. In person, he was a diminutive politician. 
Now, I think this is really harsh. And, you know, if DeSantis had done better or gotten a couple of breaks, then everybody would be writing about what a genius he is. The campaign introduced him to the nation as a bright but socially awkward introvert, a nerd who did not enjoy people, which was a problem since voters tend to be people. <laughs> that's a good line. you got to admit that's a good line. Uh, then it goes into uh, the initial rollout on Twitter and what a mess that was. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Okay, story number two. New York Times says it's now increasingly clear that if Trump goes to trial in either of his two federal cases, one, the January 6th case, the other, the classified documents indictment, he is going to put attacking what he and his allies call the deep state at the heart of his defenses. That's because special counsel Jack Smith tends to rely on the intelligence community and national security officials to prove charges he's brought. He'll use spies, cybersecurity officials, even a former attorney general, you can guess which one that is, to persuade the jury that Trump's relentless lies about election fraud were central to his efforts to remain in power. And what the former president will do is say, well, I'm a victim of the deep state, and the deep state includes the intel community. Just look at Russia, Russia, Russia. He filed a motion this week saying that the intelligence community has operated with a bias against Trump. Since at least 2019, when a whistleblower complained about his call with Vladimir Zelensky, which led to his first of two impeachment trials. I don't know if that can work, but clearly that's part of what he's going to do. Now, Fannie Willis, the Georgia prosecutor, Fulton County DA, a judge has set a hearing for the middle of February on this accusation by one of Trump's co-defendants in that big Georgia case that she had a romantic relationship with a prosecutor she hired and whose firm received about $650,000, Nathan Wade. So Willis, I guess, is trying to duck it. Yesterday she filed that she lacks personal knowledge of any matter that is relevant to Wade's divorce because uh, Wade's estranged wife, the lawyer for his estranged wife, subpoenaed Fannie Willis, and she's trying to get out of a deposition there. So, this is going to come to light. And basically, the argument is, Fannie Willis helped herself by paying this guy all this money, more than she paid the last special prosecutor in a different case, Last year, 
$650,000 so far. And the charge is, which he hasn't addressed, but hasn't denied, that he used some of that money for these lavish vacation trips that he took with Fonnie Will. So that one's not going away. Now here's Josh Marshall, one of the original liberal bloggers, Talking Points Memo, says, it's still not clear to me, and not to many lawyers I've spoken to, just what the bad act would be here. Unless Nathan Wade, the outside prosecutor and alleged boyfriend, was submitting false billing reports, the claims of misuse of public funds or kickbacks are thin at best. Willis and Wade are adults. They could have a romantic relationship if they want, but the thinness of these accusations on the merits are just swallowed alive by the dumbfounding inexplicability of just one on earth Willis was possibly thinking. Trump goes to town on the alleged partisanship of his enemy's nephew's friend's personal trainer. What was she thinking? And with everything that was and still at stake, you can't go into court and say, hey, he's my boyfriend. You need to make some argument for why that matters. So basically what Josh Marshall is saying is, this is a nothing burger legally, but in terms of giving Trump ammunition, how on earth could Fonnie Willis have put herself in this position? Story three, Mike Johnson, the speaker. Oh, by the way, I guess I should tell you that both the Senate and the House have kicked the can down the road. There will be no government shutdown tomorrow. And then we get to play this game yet again. Exact same thing that Kevin McCarthy had to do before he was ousted. But now, some of the conservative media are starting to turn on Mike Johnson, such as the Washington Examiner, saying that if Johnson goes through with this compromise spending deal negotiated with Democrats, he could be ousted just like Kevin McCarthy was. Uh, the examiner says after an initial honeymoon period following his election, many House Republicans are beginning to sour on Johnson. Conservative members of the House have indicated that cutting a budget deal with Democrats, the same thing that resulted in McCarthy's removal, could be grounds to remove Johnson as well. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Chip Roy, and a couple other Republican members um, also criticizing Johnson. There are some anonymous comments to Punchbowl News that the new speaker is in way, way over his head. So, look, the problem is Mike Johnson's got, what, a one-vote majority right now in the House? And he doesn't have the power, the ability to do what the hardline conservatives want him to do. Neither did McCarthy, which is why he lost that job, gave up his seat, and is now back in California. Because the Republicans barely control the House, they don't control the Senate, and they don't control the White House. That's a formula for compromise, but compromise is a dirty word to some of these hardline conservatives who were perfectly fine with shutting down the government in order to make their point. Number four, this is from The Hollywood Reporter, and it's about the actress Cheryl Hines. Big, long profile of Cheryl Hines. Why? Well, she was, and when I first heard of her, 
was when she played Larry David's wife on Curb Your Enthusiasm. But then the TV marriage ended after six seasons. And uh, now, however, she is married to one Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And this sort of piece sort of looks at, well, what kind of situation is she in? Cheryl and Bobby remain deeply in love, in case you had any doubt about that, and uh, committed to heading down the road together, hand in hand. I'm taking more precautions than ever, Cheryl Hines says, as a candidate's wife, especially since a mentally ill intruder broke into their home. I didn't know that. I was here doing an Instagram Live. I look out the window. I see a guy in our backyard, and I see our security person intercept him and reach for his weapon. Man was found to be wearing a fake police badge and apparently had sent hundreds of threatening emails to Kennedy. He's since been released from jail. Family has a restraining order against him. You see how much fun it is running for president? RFK obviously running as an independent. And then she says, we have no secret service. And she says, and I totally agree with this, you would think that after that incident, plus the fact that his father and uncle were both assassinated, would qualify him. Well, the piece then says that number of family members, including former Maryland Lieutenant Governor Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, uh, Kerry Kennedy, Rory Kennedy, former Congressman Joe Kennedy, have all denounced Bobby for running for president, calling it dangerous to our country. Bobby might share the same name as our father, but he does not share the same values, vision, or judgment. Same thing for... Caroline Kennedy, who's now U.S. ambassador to Australia. So the reporter says, has this put an end to all the family get-togethers? She says, no, no, it continues. Is it awkward? I think organically, because of what's going on in our lives, it doesn't always fit in with what's always been going on in their lives. Right now, we're in a different orbit. Any hard feelings on Bobby's part? He has no hard feelings, which is admirable. Because he knows at the end of the day, this is hard for them for lots of reasons. They didn't ask for it, but just by being related to him, they're involved. I think that's challenging for people. And RFK says, I see my family all the time. I just came back from 10 days of skiing with the whole family there, with Cheryl there. I mean, listen, I grew up in a milieu where we were raised to argue passionately with other and still love each other. Okay. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And finally, number five. You know, the newspaper business in which I grew up is tough these days. It is very difficult to make any money at all. A lot of newspapers have folded. A lot are kind of a skeleton of their former robust selves. So the New York Times looks at the billionaires who have bought up papers thinking, well, you know, I've made all this money, I'm a genius, and I can turn them around. Uh, Not working out so much. So, for example, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post a decade ago, $250 million of his own dollars. Patrick Soon-Shiang, startup billionaire, bought the LA Times in 2018 for $500 million, Mark Benioff, founder of Salesforce, bought Time magazine with his wife for $190 million in 2018. 
But it increasingly appears that billionaires are struggling just like nearly everyone else. The Time, the Washington Post, the LA Times have all lost millions of dollars last year. After considerable investment from the owners and efforts to drum up new revenue streams. So at the LA Times, Kevin Merida, widely respected as the editor, former managing editor of the Washington Post, announced last week he was resigning. I mean, he was resigning because he was told to resign. After tension with Shun Chang about editorial and business priorities, the LA Times was on track to lose 30 to $40 million last year, according to sources. And members of the paper's union have called an emergency meeting yesterday to discuss the possibility of another major round of layoffs. This is the big one, the email said. All these papers have gone through lots of rounds of layoffs. Spokeswoman said there was a significant gap between revenue and expenses. Duh. She said the family had invested tens of millions of dollars each year and are continuing to invest. So the thing is, all of these zillionaires, I mean Jeff Bezos, they could continue to underwrite the losses year after year after year. They've got the money. It's a rounding error to them. But they all came in with the view that they didn't want to just throw good money after bad, and there had to be some improvement in the financial situation. So after the 2020 election, subscriptions went down at the Washington Post. Ad revenue led to about $100 million of losses last year. I mean, that's a significant chunk of change. And at the end of 2023, the Post, and I've talked about this, eliminated 240 jobs through buyouts. And they were mostly top performers, prize winners, People whose names were known to Washington Post readers, but also who are confident they could get another job elsewhere. The uh, temporary CEO, Patty Stonecipher, said the buyouts were difficult but necessary to invest in our top growth priorities. Okay. And they've tried to, you know, package subscriptions with Amazon Prime and things like that. But it's still bleeding money. As for Time Magazine... No comment from a media company. That cracks me up. Um, The chief executive, Jessica Sibley, said that the buyer, the now owner, Benioff, was making lots of exciting changes based on an amazing vision. We are fortunate to have an amazing new CEO. She has done an incredible job restructuring the company over the last year. We have never had a bigger year, including Taylor Swift, driven by Jessica's vision for the company. Taylor Swift was the person of the year for Time Magazine. Now, before I ended here, there's a couple places where it's actually worked. Boston Globe, bought by John Henry, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, has been profitable for years. I wonder if the Red Sox coverage has been toned down. That may be not fair for me to say. I'm sure if they're on a losing streak, they hear it from the columnists. The Atlantic, which Lorraine Powell Jobs, Steve's widow, bought in 2017, says it has more than 925,000 subscribers, but not yet profitable. So I still think, especially for local and state news, that 
when newspapers like the Washington Post and the LA Times and now the Baltimore Sun has just been bought by a very conservative local guy. Uh, it hurts. It hurts journalism. It hurts the employees, obviously. It hurts the country. And every single billionaire who bought a paper, I'm sure, thought he or she was enough of a genius to fix all the problems. And it turns out it is rocket science, I say in a barely disguised illusion to Bezos and his rocket company. It's hard stuff. And I wish everybody the best, whether it's billionaires or others who are running or working at or sacrificing at America's newspapers. Well, once again, weekend coming up. Enjoy the snow and the cold and wherever else you are. Obviously, that wouldn't apply to listeners in, oh, I don't know, Florida or California. Remember, Media Buzz Sunday morning. I'll see you then. And back here next Monday with even more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 